City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. OK, City Limits and we're... Um, the first Wednesday of the month, it means we've got our monthly transport. He's not just monthly, he's, he's every day of the year expert on transport, but he comes in once a month, John McPherson. John, welcome to the show. Hi there, Kevin. Hi there, everybody out there in lockdown land. That's right, and Karina doing all the technical work for us. I'm Kevin Healy, and this is, as we said, City Limits. And uh, John, we're going to talk, trans- a fair bit to talk about on transport today too, so we'll get to it shortly but a couple of just a couple of items through the week when i say shortly john not before 27 past of course oh no no i understand kevin it's a bit like um is it not poultry tales one of those english shows i know my place you know <laughs> it's good i'm glad you do <laughs> i often think you don't and i feel bad about it <laughs> hang on, i'm going to do something here we go listen to okay. this john right on. there we are that was the pouring of the tea good that's over Okay, I've got a cup of coffee here. Oh, okay, you can... That's right, you must be missing the tea, though, from City Limits, but... I can toast you you with coffee. I just want to comment on um, the way television deals with some things and, you know, as as if our sensitivities are going to be abraded by showing something we shouldn't see. But the other night, a copper uh, talked about these people who are campaigning every day against the lockdown. They, they seem to me to be very much the the far right sort of looking people. But the copper described their actions as batshit crazy. But on the telly news I saw, they, they put on the bottom of the screen, B-A-T-S asterisk asterisk T crazy. So you didn't really, you know, so they didn't actually spell out batshit. But then when he got up and spoke, they had him actually saying it. So I thought, well, if he's going to get up and say it, why not put it on the screen as well? What's what's the use of the asterisk? Perhaps they thought, well, if the copper says it himself, you know, nobody's going to sue or go after him. But if we quote him, perhaps we'll be uh, complained about, you know, something like that. All right, so that means city limits can now be complained about, John, does it? Because we just said it. <laughs> it's such a mild, moderate little program most of the time, Kevin. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. We, we nothing to complain about here. Nah. Just speaking of complaining, just as an item of interest, Mary Woodbridge, who um, oh, was yeah. a state Liberal MP and, um, you know, member of the Liberal Party, pretty conservative, she resigned from Parliament, I can't think when, probably the last election, I think. And she's been appointed Australian chair of a group called Global Citizen, an international advocacy group aiming to end extreme poverty by 2030. And she said she was, well, it says she departed Parliament earlier this year. She must have resigned midterm. She said she was passionate about supporting the grassroots movement and involving herself in the regional and global effort. She said the pandemic was having a phenomenal impact on the number of people facing extreme poverty, but the crisis presented an opportunity for leaders to invest in new ideas and solutions. And I've got a feeling with Mary Woodridge challenging world poverty, it's not going to do, do, not do much to, to eliminate it or alleviate it. 
Uh, and I suggest the new ideas and solutions she thinks about won't in fact go to the real problem, which is the very economic system that she supports. Just a casual thought, John. Yeah, uh, just a casual thought, Kevin, and, and I, I suspect a very good one, yes. The idea of um, capitalism, which has been dominant in, in the world for the last 150 years, fixing the, the issue of world property now, after all this time, is a bit um, questionable, yes. Yes, <laughs> okay. I think I think our Mary, I think our Mary would be more interested in, in the future of all the consultants and the Western um, think tanks and you know all the hangers-on. Yes, I hope the world's poor aren't putting their faith in Mary. Don't hold your breath. No, and and two years ago, of course, in December two years ago, Tanya Day was um, died in a prison cell at Castlemaine after oh, being yes. dragged off a train. We I think we all remember the story. No surprise here, I guess, that the coroner back in April said her death was clearly preventable had she not been arrested and taken into custody. But this week, last Wednesday, in fact, the police announced that no charges were going to be laid against police over that. But I don't think that comes as a hell of a surprise, does it? No, I saw some commentary myself that's, that where all the police, um, you know, individually said, no, 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 they wouldn't have changed the way they did, did anything. You know, they were totally happy with their response at the time and um, they couldn't see any other other path than that she would have ended up in a cold um, police cell with uh, nobody checking her even though they were supposed to check on her. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the suspicion remains and I think, um, I don't know, I can't recall where the coroner said this, but the suspicion remains that if she'd been, been perhaps not identifiably um, uh, indigenous, she may well have been looked after much better, and uh, much yeah. greater efforts would have been made to find some family or somebody to uh, care for her, rather than rather than this impersonal dumping in a police cell. Anyhow, then the question seems to me to remain: Was she really a danger to anybody remaining on the train, even if she was a little bit inebriated? And uh, yeah, all of that. It just seems like she got a very uncaring. Uh, response from the, from the Rosses. Well, in terms of police killing people in custody, uh, the only person who seems to have done time in jail was the leader of the Palm Island um, Aboriginal protesters. And in yeah. fact, the, the policeman who killed the young bloke up there, of course, was actually given an honour. Yes. So it's, uh, it just continues the, the attack on our Indigenous people, I guess. I think in that case, things have moved on since then. There has been a reconsideration of that. that to some degree, I do believe, but uh, yeah. As well there ought to have been, yeah. Oh, well, yes, <laughs> of course. We mentioned some weeks ago the, the hearing in the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission about uh, Santos oh, yes. proposing a, a, an extension of its project at Narrabri. And interestingly enough, on the same page of the Financial Review a couple of weeks ago, two stories. One, Santos insists it can coexist with Narrabri farmers, and it goes on to say, um, Santos and the New South Wales Planning Department say coal seam gas can be safely extracted from deep coal seams protected by several rock layers from shallower aquifers at the project site in the Pilliga State Forest. It again dismissed claims of fresh evidence the project may significantly underestimate the impact on shallow aquifers. Multiple lines of evidence indicate most known faulting within the project area is of small scale and does not extend into the overlying formations. 
potential impacts to groundwater flow due to faulting is highly unlikely at the local and regional scale. And this was, of course, they're kicking back because there were 400 or so people gave evidence opposing the whole thing. But a bit unfortunate for Santos that on the very same page there's a headline, Whitehaven charged over Narrabri mine. And Whitehaven Coal is facing more than $16 million in fines after the New South Wales mining regulator charged the company with failing to rehabilitate drill sites, illegally drilling boreholes and building unauthorised tracks at the Narrabri coal mine in the state's northwest in the same place as the other one's going to be. Yeah. And in fact, um, Whitehaven was um, banned. Its, its mining licence was knocked off last year, in fact, because it suspended the licence because of it not complying with the requirements of the suspension notice. So while at these hearings, these companies keep telling us that the the damage is likely to be totally minimal, we find that once they get operating, a few things can happen, John. I seem to recall that about 97% of the uh, presentations at that inquiry were against the uh, mining. Was it Yes. Nearly 100% were against the mining up there in the Pilliga, around the fracking up there in the Pilliga State Forest, yes. You know, the whole project. Uh, I've seen commentary from, I think it might have been the Australia Institute, saying that the the economics of the project don't stack up, that the the cost of the gas is likely to be so high that it won't even be uh, possible to sell it at a price where they can make money. But, of course, we haven't yet heard from the subsidies that the Commonwealth Government seem to be promising the gas industry, courtesy of Angus Taylor, the Minister, because we have to have a, a much, much boosted gas industry. Heaven knows why, but that's the attitude yeah. of the, the Government and Taylor. But they're not things they say in public. They're uh, very, very quiet about their intentions. Well, and also the economic recovery mob they've set up to That's right. to regenerate the economy with led by Nev Power and a group of people from the fossil industry, they're recommending pipelines all over the country funded by the government to transport gas. But interestingly basically, enough... Yes, they won't, basically, they think, think they can achieve a gas-led recovery, which is just ridiculous economically and outrageous environmentally. That's right. It's a, it's a load of hot air, so to speak. Yeah. But interestingly enough... The next day after that story I just quoted about Santos and Whitehaven, and this is a flaw in the law, obviously, Whitehaven gets green light for coal mines. So the very next day, Mm. uh, the Whitehaven coal has gained approval to develop the 607 million Vickery coal mine extension, clearing a crucial hurdle in its attempt to extract 24% more coal over 30 years. This is when we're going to be talking about climate change and extending the mining disturbance area by 776 hectares. The NSW Independent Planning Commission's approval yesterday allows the mine to more than double its annual output. It comes a day after the, and it mentions the day after they were charged with those other false things, but Environment Group locked the gate and hoped the IPC would consider these charges before approving the extension, but the commissioner said they were unable to factor in past breaches of the law when making a decision. The Commission notes that there is no fit and proper person test in respect of development consents and that matters such as the identity of an applicant or past planning law breaches have been found to be irrelevant considerations for consent authorities such as the Commission. Well, I would have thought if that's the case, it deserves a very swift change of the law. Uh, uh, Not very likely with the present New South Wales government, I wouldn't have thought. 
No, no, but it's pretty pretty outrageous that they can get charged one day and get approved to extend yeah. coal for 30 years the next day. Yeah, well, I, I think they've had charges found against Whitehaven on some of their um, Hunter Valley coal mines too for breaches of regulations too, as well. They've not been good boys, the Whitehaven guys, no. No, and of course, simultaneous to all this, the federal government's got a um, a bill before Parliament at the moment, the Streamlining Environment Approvals Bill, yeah. which of course is part of their move to, as they call it, cut green tape. And environmental groups are quite concerned about it, of course, but it's still got to get through the, the Senate and it might not, but let's hope. But yeah. uh, it's certainly a bill that makes it even easier for them to destroy the environment. I recall in here in Victoria that our, our Andrews here has um, relaxed the regulations which are in place against gas uh, extraction, not to the extent that, that the federal government wants him to. So it's another thing that they have to hate Andrews for, that I think he's yeah, that's right. still resisting fracking on a major scale in, in, in Victoria, if I recall correctly. And most of the um, farming industries would, would support him in that because the, um, you know, the view is that, that fracking requires so much infrastructure to be dumped on the uh, ground that, that farms become um, difficult to operate, you know. Yeah, it's, um, well, it's just clearly, you know, the, they're using, well, well come on, even come to it later, but there's, you know, industry all over the place is calling out to relax the lockdowns and relax um, all yeah. the all the inhibitions that are put on us by COVID, um, and they're really saying, of course, that uh, the economy is much more important than human life. I think that's what they're really saying. But anyway, well, they are saying that too. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things about gas is, of course, that um, the federal government and Angus Taylor, in particular, regard gas as essential in their view to uh, supporting a, a renewable energy generating grid because they think it has to be there to uh, fill in the holes when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow. But um, they're, they're um, not very uh, sophisticated in the, in the way they look at the um, technology. And they, don't, they, don't, they seem to think you need a whole lot of gas to back up renewables when you don't need very much. And, of course, the problem with gas is we're becoming aware that it is nearly, if not as bad, as coal in terms of emitting methane into the atmosphere when it's being mined or transported or whatever you do with gas. Uh, so the end result is no better than if you're using coal to, uh, to burn to provide the, the electric energy. So gas is not, as a, a transitional fuel is, um, you know, it's, it's outmoded probably 10 years out of date. And, of course, their the long-term investment projects and, and uh, renewables in terms of renewables being able to meet base load, uh, the, the technology there is, in, is, 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 in, you know, is, is growing almost time, yes. exponentially at the moment. And, um, and so it's you know, within a very quick, very short time, I'm sure, that um, we'll have hmm. an ability for renewables to be able to, to meet base load and 24-hour um, energy. Well, uh well, you see, base load is really the wrong term, you know, really to use um, because base load really applies to those big coal-fired power stations that have to run 24 hours a day because they're so slow to start and, and stop. Um, and they, they're, they're simply not the way power's generated anymore. Um, what we need is, is a better grid 
of high high power line, high tension power lines, so that the power that's being generated uh, in one area can be easily used in another if it needs to be. So if the power gets um, tight in South Australia, it's easy to move power from New South Wales or Victoria uh, into South Australia. We've 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 got this network that isn't very strongly connected. You know, it's in smaller it's in smaller state size bits, and it needs to be much more uh, uh, properly um, joined up. Uh, for instance, West, Western Victoria is a great area for um, both wind and solar, but the high, high tension power lines in, into that area and out of it aren't up to handling a whole lot of um, renewable energy. Yeah. But they have to, have to, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, the grid's yeah. a major problem at the moment in terms of its proximity to where the renewables are. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's very, very yeah. major problem. And, and so far, people like Taylor are not, are not remotely interested in doing anything about it. He'd much rather build gas power, gas gas pipelines and bung in, um, bung in gas power stations at various places uh, rather than do the whole thing with electricity. Yeah, well, they're also, they're also offering 3.3 million for a, um, a, they're calling it a low emission coal-fired power station in, up in Collinsville in Queensland. Um, it, it's currently That's a study right. into it, but the federal government's putting up the money because of the because of the country or the national party rump up there, of course, and all those people, so that that's also got to get through parliaments. Hopefully, it won't. But they're three point three million when that could be going to all sorts of things out in other areas. But yeah, look, last week, John. I, yeah, that's a little, little peccadillo, of course, in terms of the amount of money. It's tiny. <laughs> oh, that's right, it is. But nonetheless, yeah. Uh, last week we discovered the problems because as people are aware now with this new current situation, we're pre-recording this on Monday mornings for play on Wednesday morning. And this, of course, has the odd problem when some things can change dramatically, but they sure did because I've been talking for some weeks about the um, sexual harassment situation at AMP and the promotion of Bo Pahari, even though they settled a, a sexual harassment case for half a million. But I mentioned last week that you know the investors, even some of the big investors, were getting very upset about it, and things were about to happen. Well, half an hour after I we finished recording, and two days before we went to air, I turned on the news, and it all happened. So we were sort of found out. But again, what we predicted was happening. But we'll take a break and come back to that because there's been further developments in that area. So, city limits. We'll take a quick break, come back, and we'll talk more about Port AMP. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. For an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription, you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash 
subscribe. Okay, back on city limits, and um, and John, yeah, as I was saying, AMP, but the input they took, they demoted Bo back to where he was. They put someone else, or they haven't yet put someone else in that position. They've changed their chairperson. The two people resigned. But the very next day, uh, Deborah O'Neill, Labor senator, gave a speech in which she's trying to get Parliament to hold a full investigation into the way AMP deals with these matters. And she quoted a woman, a whistleblower woman, who says her life's been destroyed. There's lots of quotes, and I won't go into them, but it sounds like a terrible experience for this woman. Uh, and um, she, um, well, she says the harassment I suffered ranged from receiving sexually explicit photos and emails expressing a desire to have sex with me, constant and public propositioning, including in front of some of the company's largest clients, physical harassment, including being touched repeatedly by a leadership team member at the office, a senior colleague groping me off-site and another forcing himself on me by rubbing his genitals against me at a work function. Finally, and in my experience, most egregiously, my direct manager threatened to end my career if I did not follow his sexual wishes while alone with him on a work trip. And she said that was a, a terrible fear for her, a physical fear in that situation. But, but I, I raise it again because AMP Head of Corporate Affairs, Helen Libacy, emailed all staff telling them the behaviour and conduct described in Senator O'Neill's speech is distressing and did not reflect, quote, the values and behaviours of the AMP we all work so hard for. Well, recent history would suggest it does. But I think <laughs> all, these, all these companies talk about when something happens, it doesn't reflect our values. But I think the values of all companies are simply their value and uh, and that's all that matters to them. That's all that matters. Right, right. But, yeah. So. so the idea of there being a moral, a morality or a moral uh, angle to the way that, to the company's identity, you think is completely um, ridiculous. They only the act way. when they think their reputation is going to be hurt by it and they react then, yep. but it's not because they have some moral principles involved. All they're about right. is making money. Yeah. There's nothing really intrinsic, <laughs> intrinsic there. That... Nothing at all, John. Nothing at all. No. And, of course, the other one that's been floating around, um, Rio Tinto, they also acted last week a bit. They actually cut the um, the bonuses to two or three of their their um, executives. But they um, also they, they commissioned an internal report by one of their own directors, Michael Lestrange, and surprisingly he found there was no one to blame for blowing up the caves. Uh, and as James Thompson, a columnist in the Fin Review, wrote, no individual or individuals are identified as being responsible for receiving reports in 20... This is important, I think. Receiving reports yeah. in 2014 and then again in 2018 from archaeologist Dr. Michael Slack declaring the Dukan 2 rock shelter one of, quote, the highest archaeological significance in Australia that had the amazing potential to radically change our understanding of the earliest human behaviour in Australia, and then out of quotes, and then failing to even initiate a review of the mine plan. And certainly no one is named as being behind the decision in March 2013 to choose a mine plan that destroyed the rock caves or the rock shelters and allowed Rio to get a bigger pocket of better quality ore over three other plans that protected them. But it goes on. So I think last week's report was simply a whitewash, in my opinion. And um, 
Well, yes. Um, uh, you know, even even you know, just before the before the caves were blown up, you know, Rio Tinto was make, making the sort of statements that implied that the most careful consideration had been given at all levels to the situation at the caves. You know, you know, this report comes out now saying, well, we can't identify anybody as having made the decision. But, but that was not the impression they were giving before they chose to blow up the caves. They said, oh, a whole lot of very careful attention had been given, you know. So, you know, that's, it is apparently we're supposed to just believe the public relations. Yes. And now the public relations have changed. Yeah. And if no one on the board was aware mm. of an archaeological report that's been around for five or yeah. about seven or seven years and another one for two years... Uh, then yeah. surely that's a reflection on their incompetence. Mm. Well, yes, but incompetence in our terms, not in mm. these, of course, They're in their terms. That's not the sort of thing you want to escalate to a high level. But, of course, when the public relations people talk, they assure you that it has been escalated internally to a high level. So you feel content that the company has given it lots of study, but apparently in reality it doesn't. No. But, but there has been quite a lot of... Um, kickback around the world from Rio shareholders. The company does seem to feel, what's the word, chastened, yeah? They, they obviously uh, uh, feel, if not, they wouldn't have felt chastened by anything the Indigenous people might have said, I suspect. But there have been big shareholders from around the world who have also been, been very annoyed by this behaviour. And, and Rio Tinto has been feeling it, I suspect. Oh. E.g. the... Um, the yearly bonuses have been withdrawn. From yeah, poor dears. A lot of senior management. Yeah, poor dears. Yeah. You're only getting yeah. seven or eight but million. I each. mean, I find it. I find it interesting that that's that's the sort of thing that has affected them. You know, not the not the needs or, or feelings or views of the people on the ground, but the um, you know the international um, big shareholders. You know, mm. yeah, like yeah. no doubt, big banks and things like that who have felt. Indirectly, their reputation has been besmirched by this behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this week you'd be pleased to know that John Sebastian Jark, the chief executive who lost about a million dollars or some whatever, uh, he only gets about seven or eight now for the year. Right. He's he's just coming out this week and from two weeks quarantine in a luxury pub in Perth because he wants to go up and meet the indigenous people and sort things out with them. So that's good. But but the trouble is, they're uh, saying they mightn't want to meet him. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> So we'll see what happens there. He has all the making of high-end public relations. Imagine <laughs> That's it'll, right. It will be turned into a beautiful little, beautiful little movie to play at the next um, shareholders meeting. You know, that's that's what I would. That's what I think of the plan is there. Yeah. He can get a photo of himself about to blow something up. Um, oh no, Kevin. Oh, sorry. Okay. Be, but also. We'll get on to transport very shortly, John, but um, oh, yeah. <laughs> remember recently deceased Jack Mundy, one mm. of his mantras was workers should do socially useful work and should decide their own what they do themselves. And yeah. I can't, the government is throwing up money to, to kickstart the economy because of COVID, but the two big things they've thrown up in the recent weeks are the 3.3 million I mentioned to, to look at the possibility of a coal-fired power station in Queensland. And the other one is a billion-dollar package to the merchants of death, to the defence industry. 
Morrison says, like much of the economy, our local defence industry is doing it tough because of COVID-19. This is especially so for small and medium-sized businesses that are critical to jobs, etc. And they're spending they're spending all this money on, well, there's going to be at least a new boat. There's a Bushmaster protected vehicle, but also $190 million for infrastructure projects in the Northern Territory, including the military main base at the Larrakia Defence Precinct, Robertson Barracks, the local RAF base and Delamere Air Weapons Range. And of course, this um, will benefit because, of course, increasingly the Australian and US forces are, are, are Darwin and all this money is going to defence. Now, I would have thought if socially useful work and workers made their own decision, we could think of well, that's $1 billion plus $3.3 million at this stage. How that could be spent on maybe a few other things that might be a slightly more beneficial to society, John? Yes, Kevin. What more can I say? Like, like <laughs> even public transport, John. Or social housing. Public housing, John. The health system, for instance. And look, we'll, we'll take a quick break in a minute. I just, but I'll read you one headline that uh, leads into transport as well, but you'll be pleased to know they're still trying to help us all. Australia needs to live with COVID-19, is the headline, says Transurban CEO. So <laughs> Transurban wants us all to live with it and drive with it, apparently. He wants to get us back on his motorways. That's right. Pay, pay, pay. That's right, <laughs> which we'll talk about after this break. Let's take a break and come back and we'll start talking transport with John McPherson. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Okay, back on City Limits and uh, John McPherson, now transport guru, is here. We've been talking about lots of other things, but John, we led up um, about Transurban, but of course, the, the figures are showing that, that road traffic is way down at the moment. But there was one, there was one um, uh, report that said that because of the number of people now buying things online, and um, and an increase in, in freight traffic due to lots of factors that when people start getting back on the road after you know, when things are relaxed, then there could be massive traffic jams because commuters will be avoiding public transport, they claim, and they'll be competing with the extra trucks and, and delivery vans that are now out on the road. So that's one prospect coming from one, one company that yeah. did the review. Well, that's that's a point. I mean, that, that the habit of of uh, getting things delivered, you know, uh, online buying of all sorts, well, nearly everything, and things being delivered by a man in a white van, yeah, could remain much more common than it was was in the past. Yeah, indeed. And of course, the other thing you mentioned is the um, well wariness of using public transport because people will will be concerned about um, con- contamination. Can we call it? between passengers on crowded trains and trams. Well, the trains and trams aren't likely to get crowded anytime quickly, for one thing, because lots of people probably will stay working at home while they can. 
I, I don't know of any studies here, but I, I was reading about studies in the UK, which seem to indicate the amount of transmission of COVID on public transport, on trains and trams and buses, was very, very low. I think this was probably with everybody wearing masks, which, you know, would seem to be something we will have to continue to do for quite a long time. But that was quite reassuring, I thought, that the transmission on, you know, sitting in trains and, and buses and trams was, was low, very low. Is that in a situation where there's very few people using public transport or are they more crowded in that situation? Do you know? That's what I'm not quite sure about, Kevin, whether in, whether it was about ordinary levels of crowding or whether it was about um, uh, low levels with, with people seated widely apart. Not sure, sorry, can't help you there. I've only, well, I've only, I've only used it in the last month, I've only used it for one day, uh, but I, I was on a train a couple of days ago and I was the only person in the carriage on that particular train. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's um, really interesting. If people do try to use their, their cars more to, to go to work, that'll be a problem if people are travelling to the inner city or the, or the CBD to work because the same old problems will arise, as you say, lots of congestion and, of course, lots of where do you park your vehicle, you know, mm. because that's, that's always been part of the issue of why people end up using public transport as well, you know. And Melbourne City's been cutting back on parking to allow for more bike yeah. facilities yeah, as well. That, so, is, uh, that isn't the sort of tend not to be the parking that people would use all day, though, you know, not... Well, I guess so. They're, they're two hours or something, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. that's my, my impression. So it could be, you know, the usual institutional factors will all start to bear, bear down, you know, that the, the bosses will want people back in their offices because they're already renting their offices. And so they want, they want their people back where they can see them. So the pressure will be for people to, to come back to work. And, you know, all those, all those sort of factors will will manage, mean that things will over time, but sometime move back to where they were before COVID, you know, uh, with heavy duty flows of both people on public transport and in, and in cars, particularly to the city. Yeah, well, the, the transport minister, whose name we couldn't think of last month, I think it's Ben Carroll or something, isn't it? Ah, uh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he, he said that, he said, in fact, that the pandemic had completely changed the way people moved around Melbourne. But once restrictions ease, we know people will want to return to doing the things they love rather than sitting in traffic or waiting for a train. Well, they wouldn't have to wait for a train if we ran them more regularly, I suppose. Um, but anyway, that's that's his comment. No, well, that's, that really raises a problem that's happened with COVID, particularly with the um, curfew at 8 o'clock at night. There are plenty of people out there who, who work past 8 o'clock, you know, plenty of shift workers, and plenty of them, of course, are health workers and people like that who are so vital at the moment. They are finding that when they go to go home, say at half past 11 at night, the wait for um, a train or a tram is very long because the frequency of services has been cut back from the previous fairly minimalist level to an even worse level, like waiting 80, 40 minutes, I'm sorry, for a, for a tram or 40 minutes for a train. And that's the sort of useless sort of instinct that overcomes um, the, the transport authorities in Melbourne, you know, that they, they want to cut these things back. But, you know, you cannot cut services back 
below a certain level if you want people to use them. Yeah, a tram stop at 11.30 at night for 40 minutes is a pretty pretty well, lovely exactly. and enjoyable experience, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I would have thought, at least on, on main routes, it shouldn't, they shouldn't be cut back to anything more than every 20 minutes. Even that's mm. pretty poor. Yeah. Um, so if they want people back on public transport, they really can't wait to ra- raise the service levels back to where they were even as people come back. They've got to bring the services back to encourage people to use them. So the, the service level has got to encourage demand, not, not trail demand. And they don't ever seem to get that, but it's the quality of the service that ge- helps generate the, uh, the patronage, not the other way around that in fact nobody particularly uses public transport out of joy, although there are a few people. Um, mostly it's being used because it, it's more convenient or cheaper or some combination of the two that makes it worthwhile. And convenience is certainly part of it, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and moving on, um, the the suburban rail loop, the $100 billion yes. thing announced, that uh, will go all around Melbourne, they're saying it'll be ready by 2050, I think was the date they set when they announced it. They're now saying the new, the first station on the loop will be built an underground station near the Southland Shopping Centre at Cheltenham as the start of the whole thing. But subsequent to that, there's a group called City Deal, which is claimed uh, to be a bipartisan group with plans, and they, they've got great plans for North and West Mel- Western Melbourne. It was announced last week by... Brax and Brumby, two ex-premiers here, and the Senate President, Ryan, who's a Liberal. And it's backed by the 13 councils across this area. But there's a lot of things proposed, not just transport, but there's a number of transport initiatives, one of which is a second Melbourne metro tunnel connecting the Mernda line across the city to Fisherman's Bend and under Yarra River to Newport. Do you know much about that? Yeah, I I know a little a little about it in a, in a in a general sense that that it does you know that that becomes part of Met, Melbourne Metro Tunnel Number Two, which would as you say connect across from say Newport Station there in um, in uh, you know over there in the west in Newport yeah <laughs> in the west Newport, yeah Newport yeah so I was trying to I was trying to generalise put it somewhere general yeah. On the on the uh, the old um, Werribee rail line, you know, and Newport's where the Williamstown line um, turns off the line. Yep. Yeah. So if you wanted to bring a line more directly in from the west, and of course the present line meanders around the place a bit, and so does the present new line that goes out through um, Tarnit and uh, Wyndham. Brindam Bale, that's, that's a, a roundabout loop as well. If you wanted to bring a line into the city fast that was coming directly from Geelong, and of course everybody's now talking about this high-speed line from Geelong, that looks the obvious way to bring it into the city. It'd be able to follow the present rail reservation as far as Newport Station, which is close to the river, and then dive under the Yarra and come up in um, Fisherman's Bend. And so it would be a way to get rail service to Fisherman's Bend and then on underground to a station underneath, say, the present um, Southern Cross. And uh, from there, it could go further to the northwest uh, through under the CBD and then finally connect at somewhere like Clifton Hill to the uh, rail lines coming in from the northwest. 
So it, it would be a way to provide the Melbourne Metro 2, as it's called, and, you know, help provide a, a few extra uh, access ways to the city for rail and more capacity. And I think it looks quite attractive, attractive thing to do. And that might mean that the Geelong trains would no longer need to go through Tarnit and Wyndham Vale and round that way. They could all come directly uh, through this new line. And that would take away some, some capacity constraints on the lines that go out through Sunshine and it might enable, enable um, uh, trains to the airport and trains to uh, Ballarat and Bendigo to um, uh, use the, the current tracks, so on and so forth. Yeah. Is there much support for this around the government, do you know? I think there is a fair bit, yeah. yeah. It's been, it's been one of those idea that's, ideas that's been talked about quite a lot over the last, say, five years, yeah, yeah. Um, but like a lot of these things in Victoria, that you never quite know how well they are supported and you never quite know where there's been any decent studies done about whether it would be worthwhile. I mean, my, I still have a problem with the big circumferential suburban line that, that um, Andrew's announced. This loop there. one we're t- that we're talking about, the loop one. Yeah, yeah the loop yeah. one. Yeah, the... Is, is, that, is that more or less pie in the sky? I mean, it... Well, I don't... I, I um, remain to be convinced by it because it's one of those things that looks obvious to any, you know, any... Any um, young male who looks at you know looks at a map and says, "Oh, where will we build a new railway?" You know, it's got that gee whiz boys thing about it. You know, boysy thing about it. But I'm not sure. I mean, everybody says we want to get be able to go across between suburbs, but see, it'll still only be one line. It won't be a grid of of lines. You know, that are making it easy to go across. It'll still only be one line going across. So I'm not convinced it really should be. You know the highest priority. You know there seemed to me, seemed to me maybe this this line coming in from the west via Newport and under the river to Fisherman's Bend and then the city that maybe that's more important. Yeah, the city deal thing also recommends because I mentioned they they say they've announced the, the Southland as the first station they're muting, but yeah. um, this this report also reckons they should start the western sections at the same time. Um, so the western suburbs don't don't suffer, but don't, don't get lost, left behind again. Yeah, look, yeah, I think that, we may, maybe that Karina would like us to do another short break just at this point, maybe. All right, we'll take another short break, and um, yep. <laughs> you're, you're directing me here, John. That's wonderful, and uh, we'll be back shortly. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say... Yeah, nah. Yena Pasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on city limits, and uh, we mentioned that they suggest the western section of the loop should be at the same time as they start the one down south. But mm. uh, as I was sort of suggesting, uh, is it is it like? Well, I'm going to say get off the ground, but it's going to be mostly under the ground. But is it likely to get off the ground or under the ground realistically? Well, everybody's pretty convinced the airport rail link is is a necessity, but of course, it's probably been put off at least for a couple of years, because, you know, aviation is going to be in the doldrums for a while. But in fact, building the uh, airport rail link uh, from, say, Sunshine, out from the city to Sunshine, and then from Sunshine to the airport, and then possibly building another line from the airport across to the northern line near Broadmeadows, that would be building quite a large section of the the city, you know, the, the loop line that the government wants to build, mm. you know, both those bits would be part of the loop, which would um, be useful now rather than having to wait, you know, till many years when they, when it all gets linked up. So that, that to me looks attractive as a piece to build, yes. And I certainly wouldn't want to see that held back by the government deciding that there are more marginal seats in the eastern suburbs for them to go after you know, by building the city, the loop, you know, the outer loop there. Right, okay. And the, another recommendation in this report is that they want a 100-kilometre outer metropolitan superhighway linking the Hume Freeway in the north to the Princess Freeway southwest of Werribee. And it says that both state and federal governments are already working on the business case for that. Is That's more roads, yeah. John. Is that a smart move? Yeah, well, that's been in the, in the uh, Vic Roads playbook for at least... I don't know, 15 years or 20 years. You know what they're like. They like to have they like to have their ducks lined up very early. Mm. So they've they've been wanting to build that, and of course they've never seen a road they didn't want to build, <laughs> or a creek valley they didn't want to build a road on. Correct, because it's always an easy place to build them. Yeah, but I think we've still got to take take notice of the awful mess the northeast links going to engender because of the scale of the thing they're determined to build out there. In the northeast, I mean, you know, do we really, really need more roads on the scale where, where parts of that northeast link are going to have 20 lanes? You know, not even Brax and Brumby can surely be um, in favour of that. I mean, that's not finishing the ring road. That's that's just committing a whole large sector of Melbourne suburbs to um, you know a road-based future and an expensive one where people will be paying a lot, lot of tolls for, for using the roads. 
Yeah, and of course, when you provide roads in areas where there's inadequate public transport, then you set a pattern for people, and it's very hard to get to change that pattern at any later down the yeah. line, even if you want to. So, yeah, well, that's right. The never, never to be built Doncaster rail line, and what was supposed to be a rail line in the first place, is a good example where there's now, you know, people are just locked into cars in that corridor now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's certainly. I think the official mind has certainly written off ever building a railway. To Doncaster for sure. Yeah, mm. that's uh, they've decided. Well, as we've said, the twenty-one lanes you talked about, in fact, take up the whatever land was left where they might have yeah. built a railway anyway. That's right. They might end up getting electric electric bus services, but I think that'll be about the best a bet they'll get. Yeah. Uh, but of course, most of the new expansion of Melbourne, the new suburbs, is going on in the west, which would be one of the reasons why they'd be arguing they need this outer outer ring road, particularly in the west. That, that would be part of it because of the uh, huge new construction all, all across the west there. Yeah, that's right, which, of course, has, has further problems in terms of the expansion and the, the attack on the ecology of the land they're taking. But, um, yep. yeah, yep. That's, that's, another, that's a further problem. Yeah, well, you know, everybody, well, I, I don't know, you know, surely the official mind is aware of the congestion in somewhere like Point Cook when people are all trying to drive by car out of there to go to work. You know, that, that's ludicrously underserved by decent public transport. Yeah, that's right. And even cars, apparently, you know, it's pretty difficult from Werribee and Hoppers Crossing and places to get just to get onto mm. the highway as well. But yeah, I yeah, think Point yeah. Cook's the worst of them, yeah. J John, there's a further report, KPMG of all people, one of the big four yeah. financial companies of the world, but they've come up, they've done a report in which they show something that we've talked about many times, that low-income families chasing cheaper housing in Melbourne's south and eastern fringes end up being hit with higher living costs than those on similar wages in middle and inner suburbs. And the main cause of the increase, of course, is the cost of transport for those people. Because, because public transport is inadequate, they've mostly got to have cars. And they point out that families often have to finance more than one car, but it's creating major economic problems for families in those areas because they say that in fact a typical supermarket shelf stacker in Casey spends $333 a week on housing and $170 on transport leaving about $200 for food, utilities and education. So it, it's a major problem due to the fact that there's really inadequate public transport once further you get out. Yeah, well, there is, a, there is a perversity about the way we provide public transport or in fact don't provide public transport in Melbourne. The, um, the areas near good public transport tend to be more middle class. And so because governments never want to expand public transport because they regard it as, you know, very expensive and not very useful, uh, you end up with people with better incomes living near good public transport and the best public transport. And uh, people on lower wages end up being serviced if the area is serviced at all just by buses. So, you know, th th there's something really perverse about that. You know, you'd think it would be the opposite. You'd think there'd be um, strong pressure to uh, service all the areas with lower socioeconomic areas with good public transport. But it doesn't work out like that. Perhaps parts of the inner suburbs are, 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 are different. But, but in fact, most of the inner suburbs now are quite, you know, expensive areas to live, except if you're in actual um, housing commission uh, housing. 
So I guess that that's that's no longer the case that you can get really cheap housing in the in the inner city. So the most of the cheap housing is now on the outskirts where the public transport is bad. Yeah, that's right. What they're really saying is once you're in that housing in inner urban areas, your costs are going to be lower than if you're yeah. in cheaper housing further out. But of course, those in cheaper housing further out can least afford the extra money, mm. of course. Yeah, and, you can't, and if you, you might want to live in the inner areas, but you can't afford to pay the rents. Yeah. Or, yeah. or the mortgage. Or you certainly can't afford to buy it. No, no. Well, afford the mortgage, yeah. And so if you're looking at your, um, you know, your expenses, you, you, you tend to think, well, well that, that house would be a lot cheaper to, uh, to rent way out there but then you only get confronted by your your weekly commuting costs maybe you know a little bit further down the line after you've been after you've already chosen where to live and uh, when you start trying to work out your sums for the where, the where the money goes during the week yeah and of course we know our kpmg so care about the impoverished in our society but a bloke called praveen thakur who's a, who specializes in transport and infrastructure with kpmg said low-income families in outer suburbs servicing two or three cars face mounting bills. For those who are the most vulnerable, then they are having to choose between having a car and fuel for the car versus having fuel for their stomach and their kids. The report suggests we're, uh, again quoting him, where should we, from a public policy point of view, provide affordable housing while pointing to where transport links were most needed? So he they're actually recommending that they provide more affordable housing and better public transport. Well, basically they are, yes. Yeah, but in Australia, we've got a very bad record, really, of extending quality public transport into new new um, residential areas uh, because um, the assumption in the official mind since World War II is that everybody would have access to enough cars you know, to pretty much do what they want to do. There are some places that sometimes it's happened. Uh, that, like, for instance, the Sunbury line was electrified. That was some, some sort of a miracle. But um, I don't know whether there was a, a strong electoral pressure for that, but that was a worthwhile improvement uh, from an area with cheap housing. But look at Melton. Melton is just as much or more working class than Sunbury. Uh, and, you know, with huge, huge number of people streaming in towards the city and near city every day to work. But that's still slowly, painfully now in the queue to get double track and electrification. But I don't know whether we'll see the electrification beyond the, before the end of this decade. No, or, or, or the next century, perhaps the way it's going, yeah. Well, yeah, these things have, seem to happen very slowly. And there are, you know, obvious, obvious other places where suburban rail lines need to be ex- extended, like the Frankston line, a bit further down down there towards Baxter, uh, that's, a, that's again quite a, quite a working class uh, area. And there's a, when you look at the, um, the gap between the um, Prankston rail line and, and then the next line over is the, is the Dandenong line. That's a huge, great swathe of um, suburbia down there with nothing, nothing in the way of rail and just fairly, fairly poor bus services servicing a huge area there. Um, you know, there, there's, yeah, the issues are everywhere. And, and, and that's, again, one of the reasons why I wonder whether, whether uh, Andrews and this um, circumferential loop line right around the outside of the city has actually got it right, because there are so many other smaller projects that I think perhaps should have higher, higher priority. 
to to link people to the present network in a proper way. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's we've talked about it for years, but it keeps on going, isn't it? John, we're about time. I think we're getting close to time, but um, yeah, we're right on time. And just well, just very briefly. To an item, and we better be careful how we talk about this, but Victoria's Anti-Corruption Agency has launched a major probe into the Department of Transport under an investigation which has prompted the suspension of V-Line boss James Pinder, and separately a senior manager at Metro Trains has been suspended up because of the same probe. Yeah. Do you know much about this? Or can we say much about it at this stage? I know very little about it, Kevin. I saw some suggestion in the media that it was something to do with cleaning contracts for the trains, but that's that's all I really picked up. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I can't. Um, no, well, fair enough. We better wait and see what comes out, I suppose, because we better be careful what we say anyway. Because uh, at this stage, um, you know, they're innocent until proven, aren't they? So yeah. Well, it's unfortunate these these things still seem to keep um, keep coming up within transport. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, so much of transport is outsourced. Of course, there's a lot of there's a lot of scope for um, shenanigans with con- contracts of all kinds. Yeah, it's interesting because um, usually when money's to be spent, uh, it's the government responsible, and when it's uh, to be made, it's the private companies. So um, I guess we'll see more of that. But it will, well, that that story will develop, so we'll talk about it in the future, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. All right, John, I think we're out of time, but um, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. And um, we'll talk again next month. Okay, thank you, Karina. And John, before we go, thank Karina, yeah, for doing a great job keeping us going. Oh, and next week, actually, we've got a bit of a special on next week. We're going to replay another interview from another program, but it's about cities. It's a Canadian expert, which was on um, the Sunday morning show um, on 3CR at 6 in the morning, with Alex yeah. Smith, but he, he talks about the role of cities generally, and it's a very interesting discussion, and a, not that we're being lazy and therefore letting someone else do the work next week, but it's well worth listening to as a study about the role of cities and just where they're going and where they should go, and um, I think it's something listeners will enjoy, and I'm gonna, because it's played at six in the morning, I don't think too many people would have heard it when it was played on the Sunday, so that's next week. That's it for this week, though. Thanks a lot. Okay, cheers. I am channeling, busting through the barrier of thought with words and new meanings that have no meaning except what they mean, stretching geographical and graphic cosmic notation, enduring the passion reason. I am channeling, busting through the barrier of thought, with words and new meanings that have no meaning, except what they mean, stretching geographical and graphic cosmic notation, enduring the passion of reason. of reason the passion of reason the passion of reason reason.
the passion of reason. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.